Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. I am very honored to have a guest on the show today who influenced my career treating women with eating disorders in the mid-90s. Jean Kilborn is internationally recognized for her groundbreaking work on the image of women in advertising and for her critical studies of alcohol and tobacco advertising. In the late 60s, she began her exploration of the connection between advertising and several public health issues, including violence against women, eating disorders, and addiction, and launched a movement to promote media literacy as a way to prevent these problems. A radical and original idea at the time, this approach is now mainstream and an integral part of most prevention programs. Jean's the creator of the renowned Killing Us Softly, advertising's image of women, film series, and several other films, and the author of the award-winning book, Can't Buy Me Love, How Advertising Changes the Way We Think and Feel. And So Sexy So Soon, The New Sexualized Childhood and What Parents Can Do to Protect Their Kids. In 2015, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. I am so happy to introduce Jean Kilborn today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Nicole. Oh, thank you. Um, where where should we start? Is there a particular place that you'd like to start right now? You know that the podcast is about women sort of 40, roughly 45 and over. And, um, you know, you know that I've treated eating disorders for many years. And I've, I'm seeing, as I'm sure you know a lot about, a, a resurgence of eating disorders in women of this age. Do you want to start talking a little bit about why that might be? Sure. Uh, I think that originally people thought that, you know, eating disorders or body image troubles afflicted only young women. And especially, I mean, years ago, they thought only young white women of, you know, a certain class. And that's never been true, but it's certainly not true now. Uh, and it's a poor body image and uh, which can of often lead to sort of eating disorders or some kind of disordered eating, it seems to me, is is very prevalent among women of all ages, all ethnic groups, all classes, uh, that it, it's very difficult to be a woman in America today and increasingly actually in anywhere in the developed world and not have 
uh, issues about eating and issues about one's body. Mm-hmm. That, that is for sure. And what, are there particular reasons you think that now, you know, Renfrew, for the listeners who aren't, you know, in this in this mm-hmm. subfield, you know, is mm-hmm. it, I would say it's probably the gold standard uh, for some for eating disorder treatment. They're reporting uh, a thirty some odd percentage increase in admissions for women over fifty. What are your thoughts about that? Well, a lot of the things that I've been talking about for I hate to say it, but really for for fifty years because that's I started collecting ads and talking about the image of women in advertising. 50 years ago, exactly. Um, and a lot of uh, what I talked about, the tyranny of the ideal image of beauty and the obsession with thinness and the um, terror that women are made to feel about growing older, a lot of those things are, are in many ways worse now than ever before. And I think there are several reasons for that. I mean, one is, um, is Photoshop and the way in which uh, images can now be digitally altered to make them absolutely perfect. And not only in ads, but also, you know, women and girls do this themselves when they post things on, um, you know, Instagram or, or, um, Facebook or any of the social media sites and they can, uh, use Photoshop to change their own images. So the pressure in some ways to look perfect, uh, is greater than it ever has been before. Also because of Photoshop and the ability to alter these images, images digitally, uh, models, the models have becoming, have become thinner and thinner all the time, but they can actually literally be replaced with virtual bodies. So we're more surrounded than ever before with extraordinarily thin, uh, models of whether they're real or not, uh, all around us. And there's an increasing emphasis on staying looking very, very young. And some of this is because of what's done with celebrities, you know, the celebrities who, because of having extraordinary amounts of money and, and probably in most cases, extraordinary amounts of work done, uh, and, at the, and also able to hire personal trainers and do all kinds of things. So there are celebrities who look much, much younger than they actually are. And yet this is held up to all women as if somehow we could all achieve this if only we tried harder, if we just bought the right products, if we just, you know, exercised enough, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that the standard is mm-hmm. is more impossible than ever before. And yet at the same time, we are more exhorted than ever before to feel that we somehow should be able to achieve it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think that for women, let's say, or empty nesters, for example, women who now are moving into, let's say, post-middle age. Um, and you you wouldn't imagine that they would say, wait a minute, this can't be true. Nobody really looks like a Kardashian in real uh-huh. life. Yeah. You think that there's a, there's a vulnerability, even still with our wisdom, still fall for this. Absolutely. I, mean, I think it, it helps to be aware of the fact that the image is artificial and constructed and uh, it, it, it helps to be conscious of it, but I don't think it's possible to not be influenced by it. I mean, I've been studying this, you know, as I said, for 50 years, I'm influenced by it. There's no way not to be. Uh, that the pressure on women is so great to, uh, to, to look a certain way, to be thin enough, to be young enough, to be perfect looking enough that even if you know that it's hype and that it's ridiculous and that it isn't, that no one actually really does look like this, um, it's, I think it's just impossible not to have this 
be part of our psyche on some level and in some way. And you speak from experience. If I'm remembering when I saw you at the University of Michigan, am I remembering correctly, you were a model. I did some modeling when I was very young. I, w I went to Wellesley College um, back in the days when, after I graduated, I had to go to secretarial school to, do, to get a job. So the options for women in those days were extremely limited. So I was a secretary, I was a waitress, and I also had the opportunity to do some modeling. But it was very... And it was lucrative, and it was one of the very few ways that a woman could make money. Uh, and it was seductive in many ways, but it was also quite soul-destroying and quite alienating. I felt extraordinarily objectified, although there wasn't really language in those days to describe that. And there was also a tremendous amount of sexual harassment that came with the territory. So what I would do is I would do a little modeling. I'd make some money. Something would happen. I'd m go back to being a secretary. You know, I... I sort of dabbled in it more than anything else. I did not, I decided ultimately not to take that path. Not that it would have been really all that available to me, I really don't know. But although I did have one famous designer say to me, baby, I can make you a star, and guess what I would have to do for that to take place? <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, mm -hmm. so it did, uh, it, I had enough experience to know that it was not for me and to know that it was, there was something really profoundly alienating about it. But, but that, and that was part of what led to my interest in the whole idea of the image of beauty and how extraordinarily important it is for women and how ultimately I always felt, even as a young woman, that there weren't any winners in this game, that we all were ultimately losers. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about the women who choose to go to Wellesley, um, and I, I'm guessing you were already, there's some self-selection there, right? I mean, you were already successful academically, you're pretty thoughtful, I'm guessing. I, I'm just trying to imagine when you really got hooked into this idea that I need to focus my time and energy on bringing this to light well that uh, my experience at well well yes i you know I, I always did well in school and uh, and of course when i went to wellesley you know uh, a lot of the universities harvard yale princeton a lot of those universities were not open to women you know so um i i went to wellesley which was is it was and remains an all-women's college and for the first time ever, sort of experienced women really in positions of power. You know, at Wellesley, uh, a lot of the faculty, most of the deans, the president were female. Every woman, every person who spoke up in class was, was female by definition. Mm -hmm. So, so what happened to me, and I think happened to a lot of my classmates, even though I was there before there was any kind of explicit feminist consciousness at Wellesley, um, or anywhere else for that matter, when I graduated and went out into the real world, I had experienced being first class, and it was very difficult to go back to being second class. So I, it, it had left me um, realizing sort of the, um, the cost of, of discrimination. And, mm -hmm. and then, of course, when I had all those experiences in the job market and all of that, that, that had a lot to do with it, too. But I didn't set out to... Um, <laughs> to have a career like this, I, I, it was much more haphazard than that. I just, I just saw a terrible ad one day and thought, this is awful and it's not trivial and why isn't someone doing something about this? And I just started collecting ads and I 
bought a camera and a macro lens and started making slides and put together a slide presentation. And again, not with any real goal in mind, except that uh, I was interested and it seemed to me that this was important and maybe something that people should be thinking about. But And I was also very afraid of public speaking in those days, as most people are, but I was quite passionate. I was very passionate about the topic and I did feel it was important. So eventually, you know, I I spoke more and more. I got over my fear and and uh, and and launched a career as a public speaker. But that that was not what I had set out to do. What was the reaction of your of your peers and your colleagues? As you, I mean, it is hard to imagine this not being mainstream. But you were one of the first people to bring this to light. I was I was literally the first, I think, because at least I'm not aware of anybody else and. And you're right that it's mainstream now, but what I was saying then, and again, this is <laughs> half a century ago, was was absolutely radical. It was radical that to, to say that advertising had an influence on us. That people thought of advertising as being so trivial that how could it possibly influence us? And e even other feminists sometimes said to me, look, we're dealing with serious issues like violence against women. We don't have time for trivia like the image of women in advertising. And I would, of course, respond, they're related, you know, that um, the objectification of women is part of what creates a climate that encourages violence against women. So it's actually not trivial at all. It's very uh, serious. And of course, these days now we know that and everybody knows it, but people didn't then. I remember you showing some slides, and I don't know if you still use these, but they were so shocking. And it was, uh, one of them was this woman, you know, probably under 100 pounds, six feet, splayed out on the floor as if she had just been assaulted. And it was an ad for a clothing company. Yeah, I probably, I don't use that particular ad anymore, but there's there are plenty of ads that show women, um, I mean, first of all, extraordinarily thin women, of course, but also women in um, risky situations or women who appear to have been beaten or to uh, have been the victims of uh, some sort of assault. I mean, that's still going on uh, in advertising. But even ads that don't do that, even the, just the ads that just the ads that objectify women that turn us into objects that dismember our bodies, you know, mm -hmm. so that just our buttocks or our legs or our breasts are used to sell products or uh, all kinds of uh, ads feature women with, that are headless. You know, all you see is a, the, the woman from the neck down. Uh, this kind of objectification uh, turns women into things, into objects. And whenever you turn a human being into a thing, you're inviting violence. I mean, in fact, I think it's really impossible to be violent to someone we consider an equal human being, but it's very easy to abuse a thing. So at the at the, the heart of all of this is a kind of dehumanization of women that I think is very much related to all the violence, the abuse, the harassment that uh, women suffer. And then we put on this additional layer of now the woman is aging. How, do, <laughs> yeah. how does that factor into this? Uh, well, the... aging, aging for, for, for a long time has been really taboo for women that we're not supposed to show any signs of aging at all. And because the idea has always been that our value, our worth depends on our appearance, our attractiveness, and our ability to attract men. And so it's cons considered that women are uh, attractive and desirable only if we're very 
if we're very young or if we stay looking very young somehow, whether that's through Photoshop or surgery or whatever. Um, and that's, that's always been the case. But as I said earlier, it's in many ways worse now uh, because this image uh, can be digitally altered to make women look very different than, than we actually are. And because of the uh, advancements or whatever, <laughs> maybe you consider them that in surgery and, you know, Botox and fillers and all kinds of other stuff so that women with money are able to uh, achieve a look that, that mm -hmm. enables them to look much younger than they are. And that, that's considered um, absolutely necessary. The same thing is not true for men. I mean, there's, there's, a, there, there's the handsome young man and then there's the mature, distinguished older man. For women, there's only the beautiful young woman mm -hmm. and older women who still look like the beautiful young woman. So there's, it's a real double standard and, uh, and puts, I think, does enormous psychic damage to women because we get the message that as we grow older, we lose our value. Um, in many ways, we become invisible. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, as you know, we're wiser than before. We're <laughs> in many ways more interesting than before. Mm -hmm. And yet we're told that we're, um, that we're not, uh, that we're invisible and that we really don't count anymore. And how does um, addiction play into all of this? Well, there's so many different kinds of addiction, but if we're uh, talking about, uh, I mean, there's a kind of addiction to beauty products, addiction to shopping, addiction to, you know, ways of trying to look young but but more serious I think are addictions to alcohol addictions mm -hmm. to other drugs you know addictions to tobacco and um, you see that related as women are trying to navigate this impossible standard and now aging and feeling like well unless I have you know, the amount of money that a celebrity does, I can't possibly achieve that. Is there some kind of um, uh, sense that they, uh, women become more hopeless or despondent and then the alcohol comes into play? Possibly, but I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would lead with that. I mean, I think that certainly all of this pressure and the ways in which women are made to feel uh, less valued as we get older can certainly cause depression and, you know, low self-esteem and all kinds of other things. And, and that might be a factor in why women would turn to food or alcohol or, or other drugs to feel better. But, but actually, a, a, more of a link is the link between violence against women and uh, addiction, that um, many uh, addicts um, were uh, sexually abused as children or experienced violence, uh, sexual assault at, when they were very young. And there is definitely a link there uh, between the kind of assault and violence that uh, women and girls are exposed to all the time and uh, addiction. And that there's research that sort of bet, um, backs that up. Hello, Zestful Agers. First, I want to thank you so much for your enthusiasm and interest in the podcast. Words cannot really describe how fun it is to make this for you. We are now in the tens of thousands of downloads and Zestful Aging is still very young. We've heard from inspiring women from all over the world, and I hope it has made your life richer and helped you be more zestful as you navigate aging. 
in addition to being fun, making a weekly podcast is a surprising amount of work. So I want to encourage you to become a patron today. It's the way I can continue bringing you in-depth, thought-provoking interviews without sponsorship, aka commercials. And I've added a special free gift just for being a listener to the podcast. It's called my best ever self-care manual. And again, it's based on research and my 25 years experience as a psychotherapist. So hop on over to patreon.com slash zestful aging and download the free manual. And while you're there, donate what you might pay for your cup of coffee today. It will make you feel good. I promise. And so for you now, I mean, you've made such a significant mark on this literature. What, how have things been for you? Are you still working on these kinds of books and, and research? Or ha, what's life like for you now? <laughs> um, well, it, <laughs> there's so many ways to answer that. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's always been interesting. I'm doing a lot less lecturing than I used to, and that's by choice. I, when I started out, you know, a long time ago, for many years, I was doing about 110 lectures a year. I was going out on Monday, coming back on Friday. I lectured at over half of all the colleges and universities in the United States and virtually all of them in Canada. And I was just on the road all the time. Uh, but I haven't, I cut back when I had a child. Um, and I had a child quite late in life. My daughter was born when I was 44. Um, so, and then I did cut back, but I was still doing a lot. But in recent years, I'm a couple, last past couple of years, I'm doing I'm doing many many fewer lectures, and that's just fine with me. Mm-hmm. I also I am writing. I don't want to do another research-based book, but I I would probably like to do some other kind of book. And I've been writing some articles that and essays that are more personal than what I've done in the past. So I recently wrote an article about an experience that I had with um, being sexually harassed, you know, a long time ago by someone who was quite famous. So um, that kind of thing I've been doing. And I'm also just trying to, you know, as we all are, you know, slow down a little bit, enjoy life, see my friends, hang out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, take care of myself. My daughter got married in June. That was exciting. So I've been spent a lot of time planning that. And, and uh, so all of those kinds of things, you know, life. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Enjoying mm-hmm. your life after. Mm-hmm. What was the thing that you've done career-wise that you're most proud of? Oh, I don't know. I suppose certainly one of them is that um, is well. One of them is overcoming my fear of public speaking and, and getting out there, you know, and 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 speaking. And I always try to tell young women in particular that I had this fear of public speaking because. As I said, most people do, and it's so important that we find our voices and that we use them. So uh, I was very influenced by uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's wonderful line, something like, you must do the thing you think you cannot do. And uh, so I just I just did it, and, and it, it got so it wasn't so, so difficult anymore. So I'm, I guess I'm proud of that. I'm also very glad that I uh, made Killing Us Softly when I did the first version of Killing Us Softly, I made in 1979, and it's I've remade it three times since then, and it's 
uh, it's very widely used, you know, all around the world. And I, I hear from people all the time that it's made a real difference in their lives. And, you know, I'm very happy about that. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, when I saw it, um, being somebody who studies this, who's in this world, you know, who was trained in treating eating disorders. And I think I felt like I read every single book on on this kind of thing. I remember being struck by learning things and saying this this goes another level deeper than what I've thought about or what I've read. I, I just found it to be so um, uh, it, perceptive isn't even the right word, but so deeply thought out. And, and it surprised me how much new material was there for me to, to kind of uh, work through in my own brain, even after, you know, immersing my, I went to Smith College School for Social Work. So Uh it was Mm -hmm. a similar experience for me that I was with a lot of powerful, strong women. It was very, uh, important in my development but um that's that's what i remember in watching your film and i think i saw the original that wow this is we're in new we're in new ground now this is this is and i think maybe i think as i'm remembering it it was i hadn't seen or thought about the dismemberment Mm -hmm. you know we all now know about objectification and all this but Mm -hmm. you know you showing pictures of here's a leg here's a head i mean what is this is like taking apart a barbie doll yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well thank you i'm glad that it did have that effect and and certainly, I mean, when I look back, and especially when I look at the first version, I mean, the first version was incredibly simply and cheaply made. It was literally one camera, one angle, trained on me, giving a lecture. It cost something like $6,000 to make. There was no marketing for it at all. And yet, in today's language, it went viral. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. And I think it was because there wasn't anything else like it out there. And I think another reason is that I, I use a lot of humor in it, and I always mm-hmm. have, and th- that was back in the days when people were saying feminists had no sense of humor, so I think that when, <laughs> when people were going to look at a film on the image of women in advertising, they expected to be hectored, you know, or to be, I don't know what, but in any event, it's actually, mm-hmm. it's actually pretty hilarious, because the ads are so completely ridiculous, and I've, yes. always, and I've always encouraged people to laugh at the ads, so. I do remember your yeah. humor. In it. Who are your uh, feminist heroines? Well, I mean, the first person who comes to mind is Jean Baker Miller. Uh, oh, who, my goodness. Yeah, who yes. wrote Toward a New Psychology of Women. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, that was a book that was published, I think, in 1976, which was um, a very important year for me. But that, and and she became a, a, a friend, a mentor. She was an absolutely wonderful woman. And Toward a New Psychology of Women, I think, is a really groundbreaking, extraordinarily important book. So that's one, uh, you know, certainly one person who, who comes to mind. So there are others who are probably not so famous, but just, you know, women who, who've influenced me in one way or another and, uh, or been supportive or been, you know, been, been helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, 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 I'm influenced a lot by my daughter, you know, who's very, uh, who's very smart. She's a social worker, by the way, and a clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. And she's, uh, very and a writer she's a wonderful writer and she's very uh smart and intuitive and i feel like um having her has given me some um real appreciation for the much maligned millennials <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. mm. how was it for you raising a girl were you 
concern that she would sort of fall prey to some of these messages as as you say are absolutely inescapable very much so and and of course i mean she did i mean there's as i said there's really no way to uh there's no way to completely avoid this and there there couldn't be a better educated child than on this topic than my daughter but and she was a very happy very confident little girl but when she hit adolescence i mean she hit in some ways the same kind of wall that most girls hit the, you know the sort of the uh drop in self-esteem and the you know the worries about one's body and all of that i mean she didn't she escaped some of the worst kinds of things that happened but I, I I certainly can't say that she, I had made her, you know, bulletproof in some way. I had mm. there, there there isn't any. That's why uh, I talk about what I call a toxic cultural environment and how important it is to see all this as all these issues as public health issues and that we have to work on changing the environment because we can't save our children, you know, child by child, house by house. <laughs> we really need mm-hmm. to try to create a culture that's healthier and safer for all children. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I hear this from other women who are very um, clear with their children from age one, their girls particularly. And it's, you know, you are fighting a tidal wave. It's, it's impossible to it inoculate is, yeah. them. Yeah, I felt that I, I was raising my daughter in a culture that was hostile to everything I wanted for her. And that I had to fight the popular cultural messages about sex and alcohol and, you know, every, and beauty and all of it, you know, every step of the way. And it was exhausting. And, and it's not, it's really not possible to do it, you know, all by one, by oneself, just for one's child. I mean, nor should we, we should, we should be working to make the, the world safer and better for all children. Do you have any advice for women? I'm seeing this in my practice where the kid, you know, things are really starting to change for them. They're sending their child off to college, perhaps. Maybe they're reassessing their relationships. You know, they might be starting to think about retirement. And, you know, and as we know, a very simple solution is to start restricting uh, the food you eat and, and, and the, the dieting helping you feel safer and more controlled and, you know, and all of this stuff. It's very tempting. Do you have advice for women who are a bit at a loss? You know, what's next for me? What now? You know, mm-hmm. I'm wrinkling. I'm not the, you know, men are men or women are not looking at me in the same way they used to. I don't know what to do with this loss of my identity. I think, I mean, the thing that's been most helpful to me my whole life in every step of the way has been my friendships with other women. So that the one thing to do is, of course, is to reach out to other women and, and just talk about these experiences and share them. And uh, because, you know, I... I mean, I try to have friends of different ages, but I do have a lot of friends my own age, so we can we can talk about talk about the psychic pain that all this causes, but we can also joke about it and you know and uh, use a lot of humor to make that that helps, I think. But mostly, it helps to know you're not alone and to have other uh, and to have supportive relationships and friendships that that can help, and that there and to sort of there is kind of an upside <laughs> to not being a sex object anymore. I mean, it, it's, a, I mean, Gloria Steinem, I think, um, said one of the many sort of smart things she has said was something like when she stopped thinking about sex, it freed up all kinds of brain cells, you know, for other things. And, um, 
I think that I think that that's true, and that there's also a certain kind of even though the invisibility is can be painful and it can be kind of disturbing. There's also a way in which there's a kind of safety that comes with it, and a kind of ability to sort of move through the world um, more freely than I was able to do, let's say, when I was a you know beautiful young woman. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a woman who had been a former Vogue model. Her name is Jill Dodd, and uh, now she's in her 50s, and we were talking about her experience. She has a book out, and I said, what's it like, you know, to have been recognized all your life, and people, it's, it's all about your beauty and being pursued? And she said, it is such a relief. Mm-hmm not to have to deal with that anymore. She just feel, you know, she talked about just being so free. I, I think that's true. And I, I mean, it's also true that if you are, you know, when you're a young woman and if you are considered beautiful, you do get an enormous amount of attention and it can feel like power. <laughs> and I suppose it is power in a way, but it's very short lived. And the thing I always knew, even when I was very young, was that this was not going to last very long. And that if I, if I, if my value depended on this, I was going to be in big trouble as I got older. So I did try, I was, that's one of the reasons that led me to, you know, start looking at these images because I just knew that this was, I was getting a whole lot of attention, but it really didn't have anything to do with me and it wasn't going to last. So mm -hmm. there is some relief. I mean, I, I can't, I can't say there, I mean, of course, there's also, um, a sense of loss, you know, and, and also as one gets, you know, much older, then there's the sense of having, not so much time left, you know, and still a whole lot that one wants to do. Mm -hmm. Are you feeling that in your own life that, you know, there's more time behind you than there is in front of you and some urgency? Absolutely. Well, there's a whole lot more time behind me than there is in mm. front of me. And uh, yes, I do feel that. And I feel it in, in terms of what I'd like to do. And, you know, there are still other things I'd like to write and all of that. But I also feel it on a more personal level. You know, my daughter, as I said, just got married and um, she's married, you know, she made a wonderful choice and I'm so thrilled about that. And they do want children and I, of course, would love to be around to be with them. So, you know, I'm feeling that as well. I'm still, you know, I mean, who knows? None of us knows how much time we have left, but um, I'm, I'm certainly hoping to be around long enough to be part of my grandchildren's lives. Mm-hmm, yes, I can imagine. Any last uh, words you'd like to say to our listeners who, um, you know, maybe, maybe struggling with this, the, you know, this whole idea of the what now and who am I now? Any, any last words? Well, I think these days there are quite a lot of resources, you know, that, I mean, there's some wonderful books out there. There's also great films. There's, there's, I have an extensive resource list on my website, which is just jeankilborn.com and, mm -hmm. and um, people can find, I think to, I, one of the things I say on my website is sort of my mantra is action is the antidote to despair. So ah. if you're feeling that, you know, lost or at sea or something like that, that maybe it would be good to, um, to get active in some other way. I mean, these days I urge people to get politically active and to, you know, urge people to get out the vote and to, you know, mm -hmm. get people registered and to, you know, and to try and do, uh, you know, help, help some of the people who are being, um, overlooked and, and, uh, trampled these days. So that, that's one thing. Or there's many other kinds of projects, volunteer projects that, and I just find that if you're taking some kind of action, 
uh, that it's that helps enormously in terms of feeling it helps you to feel a whole lot less hopeless. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good advice because I think people are feeling hopeless now for a number of different reasons, not mm-hmm. only because of the whole aging and ageist uh, problem. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. No. That's really no. helpful. Action is the anecdote to despair. Uh-huh. And people can find you at com. Right. Mm-hmm. And it has been such an honor to speak with you today, Jean. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners, so send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging Podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash Zestful Aging and consider making a small donation. You will be eligible for insider-only goodies and behind-the-scenes information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging Podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.